In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. What has come into being in him was life, the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Mark's gospel is oldest of the four, briefest of the four. Mark jumps right into the story. I'm going to tell you the good news, he said. He immediately shifts to John the baptizer, telling of one who is coming. And in only a few verses already, Jesus is there, standing at the Jordan with his cousin John, asking to be baptized. It's Luke who tells us about shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night when suddenly an angelic chorus told them to go into Bethlehem and see a baby that had been born, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. It was Matthew who told us about the Magi, these astrologers, stargazers who came from the Far East, following some mysterious, strange light in the heavens and looking for a newborn king. John, writing in Asia Minor, decided to begin his gospel in a very different way, to make it resemble Genesis 1, which begins, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The writer of the Gospel of John was aware that he was living in a Roman world, which had been a Greek world, and that still people were looking for that elusive thing they called the Logos. It was something that meant meaning, purpose, truth, beauty. And John wrote, in the beginning was that Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. Nothing was made that was not made through the Logos. When our boys were younger, we took them on a bicentennial trip in 1976. They were really young. And we wanted to start at Jamestown and then go to Williamsburg. We went into Washington, D.C. We went on to Gettysburg, finally to Philadelphia and the Liberty Bell. It was a great trip. Just five years ago, Gail and I decided we would like to see Williamsburg in the wintertime during Advent. You know how meticulous that community is about making everything authentic. Even the shoes worn by all the characters in Williamsburg are made exactly as they were made in 1776. When we got to Williamsburg, it was wonderfully cool, not so hot as it was in the middle of summer in 1976. All the little houses were decorated as they would have been in 1776. There were no great department stores where people go and buy decorations, so all of the decorations came from what they had. Wreaths were made of greenery they could find and decorated with apples, decorated with vegetables they had harvested, root crops. Beautiful. We went house by house and listened to these folk talk about 
what Christmas was like in 1776. You see, the decorating took place on Christmas Eve. Presents were opened on Christmas Day. Only then did the 12 days of Christmas really begin. The great celebrating from December 25 until January 6, when supposedly the Magi had arrived and the first Gentiles had seen the Son of God. Of course, times have changed in America since 1776. Now the celebrations begin so much earlier, so much earlier. And yet we are called to turn again to these ancient texts and see what they mean to us. Just a few days ago, we had the shortest day of the year. And in our newspapers, on television, on radio, they were telling us ancient folk around the planet discovered how to measure that shortest day of the year. Ancient folk were afraid that as the sun seemed to be retreating into the south, that maybe it would just keep going, never come back again. So when they learned how to measure that shortest day of the year and to find that the next day the light had shifted ever so small amount, but in fact the sun rose a minute earlier and set a minute later and that we were moving back towards summer, there was a terrific celebration. Certainly that was true in the Roman world. It was right here at the end of December that the Romans had a rip-snorting big party and celebrated the coming again of the S-U-N. The great saint, Augustine, already in the 4th century after the coming of our Lord, preached a sermon on a day like this and said, It is time all of you Romans to stop celebrating and praising and worshiping the sun and focus all your attention on the one who created the sun. The Logos created all that is and nothing was made that was not made by the Logos. Number two, what was coming into being in him was life the light of all people. Did you see John Dowell's story? He wrote about a year back in the 80s when he was a young man. He had grown up in a smaller town, had been taken to church and Sunday school as a boy. He had been baptized and confirmed, but now he was out on his own and not going to church. In fact, he said, I was spending more time at a local bar when I wasn't working, not ever going to church. One night, a few nights before Christmas, he said, the bartender and owner of this particular bar came over to a little group of us men who were drinking together and said, I need somebody to stand in for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve night. There will be lots of really beautiful young women here having a drink or two who'd like to sit on Santa's lap and tell him what they want for Christmas. Come on, I need one of you guys to stand in for Santa Claus. John Dowell said, I was a single guy. Why not? I said, I can do that. The guy said, fine. Told me what time to be there. So on Christmas Eve, I showed up, and he put me in that red suit with the big white beard and the red cap with a white tassel on the back. 
and I walked out into the bar. Surely enough, when he announced to everyone that Santa Claus had arrived, the young women started lining up. One after the other, they came and sat on my lap and told me what they wanted. A new Mercedes-Benz. A new BMW. One after the other after the other. And finally, he said, when the line was exhausted, and so was I, I saw a young woman who had waited till the very last. And when I saw her face, I just knew she was not going to ask for a new Mercedes-Benz. She sat on my lap. Tears welled in her eyes and she said, Santa, I just want my little boy back. And he said, I guess my Sunday school and church years sort of kicked in. And I leaned in close to her and said, you know Santa Claus can't make that happen. I know one who can. Jesus can. Could I say a prayer for you? And she nodded her head. And he said, I leaned in close to her ear. I didn't want all these other crazy people to hear what I was doing. I just wanted her and God to hear. And I prayed for her. And I prayed that some way her little boy could be given back to her. And when I said amen, I looked her in the eyes and said, you and I have been doing some bad things. Maybe if you started doing really good things, they would give your little boy back to you. He said she nodded and left the bar. I'd had enough of myself, he said. So I got out of that uniform, and I went home too. A couple of months later, I was there at the bar, sipping my drink, when suddenly someone tapped me on the shoulder. I looked around. It was that young woman. She said to me, the owner told me, you were Santa Claus' helper Christmas Eve. I said, I was. And she said, I want to thank you for praying for me. I went on home and I started doing the right things. And last week, I got my little boy back again. She gave me a little hug and then she left the bar. I didn't change immediately, John said. But for the next six months, I kept thinking about her about the prayer we'd said, about the prayer that was answered for her. I went back to church, and my life was changed. Changed. That's been 25 years ago, he said. His story was in the United Methodist Reporter because he is now the president of all United Methodist men in the United States of America. The light that was coming into the world that drives back dark places and brings hope, meaning, joy. Let's look at number three. And the Logos became flesh and lived among us. The words in Greek are literally 
and pitched tent with us. You have to go back to Torah to know to to which John is alluding here. You remember that when God visited plague upon plague upon Pharaoh until finally he relented and let God's people go free, Moses led them across the Sea of Reeds and into the Sinai Desert. God told Moses, and Moses told his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, God said when we pitch our tents every night, we should pitch one more tent just outside the circle. And that God is going to come and be in that tent for us. The next morning he will lead us like a ball of fire in the heavens. And at night, at night, he will pitch tent with us. From time to time I will go into the tent and see if God has anything new he wants to tell us. And I will tell you too, and you will tell the people. And through 40 years, whether they stayed months or even a year or two in one place before moving on to a new watering hole, the tent of the presence was always taken along. They finally had elaborate ceremonies for how it was to be folded up, how it was to be carried on poles on the shoulders of four strong men. Eventually, after a new experience at Sinai, there was a beautiful box that was placed inside the tent that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments. John is writing to us Gentiles and saying, that God, Israel's God, has pitched tent with you. He has come to be where you are. Hunger? God in Jesus knows hunger. Thirst? Cold, heat, sickness, disappointment, frustration, death. He has come to be with you. So that when you look into the face of this one, you can see the face of the Almighty. James Bovard is a well-known columnist. But he wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal just recently called A One-Season Santa. In this article, he said that he had just come out of the mountains of West Virginia and moved into New England to see if he could not become a writer. But as he submitted article after article and story after story, only to have them rejected, he was running out of money. Here I was, 21 years old, single, far out of my element, and I was running out of money. I was frantically searching the want ads. It was almost Christmas, and there was an ad from Feline's big department store. You know where they have the run on bridal gowns in that basement? That's the one. He said, I went down and applied for a job to be one of Santa's helpers. So they took us into a large room where all the red suits were hanging and all the white beards and the stocking caps, and we had a training session. We were told, no drinking. 
No eating in front of the children. You must be on your best behavior. Listen carefully to what they say. They want, but never promise they're going to get it. It puts the parents in a really awkward position if they are not able to help deliver it. Be on your best behavior. Everybody is sort of harried this season of the year. They need you to be calm and caring and compassionate. 28 minutes, he said. That's how much instruction we had. Then we all dressed up and we were dispatched to every floor in that great department store. I thought I was doing pretty well, he said, but the lines were growing longer and longer when suddenly one of the supervisors came over to me and said, we need to keep these parents shopping as long as we can. We want you to go to the restaurant and be Santa, move booth by booth, table by table, greeting the little children, helping everybody be happy so they have a good meal and they go back to their shopping. Understood? I said, understood. So I went to the restaurant and I started moving booth by booth, table by table. Some of the little children were sweet, some of them always wanting to grab at the beard, seeing if they could pull it off your face. I stopped at one table, he said. I could tell the mother and father were arguing about budget and how much to spend. There was a little four-year-old, I would guess, girl sitting at the table. I leaned in over close to her, hoping I could take her mind off of what the parents were saying when I asked, and what would you like for Christmas? And she said, I would like for you to go away. He said, I moved on to the next table when suddenly the supervisor in the restaurant came over to me and said, come with me, I got a special one over here. And just before we got to the special one, she whispered to me, she's blind. I walked over to the table, a precious child. I would guess this little girl was maybe six. I knelt down close to her and asked, what is your name? She said, Sarah. I said, Sarah, would you like to feel my beard? And she reached out one little hand and in the other. She didn't pull, she just felt. I said, would you like to feel my sleeve? It's really soft, made of, made of velvet. And she felt. I asked her what she would like, and she said she really liked books when her mother read to her. That soon she was going to learn how to read Braille, but right now she still counted on her mom to read. But she would really like to have some new mittens because it was cold outside. But James Bovard writes, when I looked into the face of her mother and saw the way she was looking at that child, I knew she was going to have Because you see cotton patch dolls come and go. And Tickle Me Elmo is really hot one year and almost forgotten the next. But it's about the relationship. The mother who really cares. The dad who really gets it. That's what we remember most, isn't it? 
It's about the people. And beyond the people, it's about Almighty God, who so loved the world, John would write in chapter 3, that he sent his Son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Number four. We have seen his glory. When Gail and I walked through the gates at Auschwitz, I really couldn't believe I was finally there. I started remembering stories I'd read about those who had died and those who had survived. Arbeit macht frei, it said as we entered. I thought about Elie Wiesel, a 15-year-old boy, 15 years old, clinging to the arm of his father, scared to death. But I also thought of Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist from Vienna, Viktor Frankl was born in 1905. He had an MD and a PhD. Living in Vienna, he had contacts with Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler. He decided to be a psychiatrist himself. He specialized in depression and suicide prevention. And the Nazis came. At first, he was allowed to continue practice at the hospital in Vienna, but only if he saw Jews, no Aryans. And then in 1942, the enemy came with a brutal fist. He, his wife, his mother, his father, put on a train and sent first to Theresienstadt. From there, they were split up, sent in four different directions, He did not know where they had been taken. Later, after the war, he would learn that his wife was sent to Bergen-Belsen. She died there. His father was sent to Dachau. He died there. His mother sent to Auschwitz. She died there. Viktor Frankl, a specialist in depression, suicide prevention, now in concentration camp. Many endured a month, six weeks. He lasted almost three years. Three long and miserable years at Theresienstadt, at Tarkheim, at Auschwitz. When the war was over, he had been liberated. He wrote, Logo therapy, man's search for meaning. He described a number of things that happened to him in that three-year period about one prisoner who had been there longer than he had been. He wanted to know what kept this man going. So every day in the work detail, he resolved to work alongside him. All day, this man babbled along about his wife. How beautiful, how wonderful, how he had first been introduced to her, how one night, after memorizing a poem, he rowed her across a lake in the moonlight, reciting poetry, 
how she was so impressed. The next day he spent half a day learning another poem so he could row her across the lake. How they finally were married, and then a child was born to them. The next morning, he'd start talking about his wife. As they were marched out into pitch darkness, the coldest winters one could imagine, so poorly clothed, he talked all day, babbled on, same things about his wife. Then one day, a new prisoner came into their barrack and said to this man, I saw your wife. She got off the train at the Udenrampa. She was motioned to the gas chambers. I thought you would want to know. Victor Frankl writes that his friend did not talk the next morning. He said, I know people need to grieve in their own way. I gave him several days, and then I started asking, would, would you like to talk about your wife? He shook his head. Are you sure? He shook his head. Do you know where the child is? He shook his head. A month later, before daylight, banging on that bucket outside, get up, get up, it's time to work. I reached just inches below me to shake my friend. He was icy cold. He had died in the wee hours of the night and had not made noise enough to wake me just inches above him. Victor Frankl writes, I discovered that a man could endure almost anyhow if he had a sufficient why. I'm convinced, he said, that we're still looking for the Logos, that word which is meaning, purpose, beauty, truth. I became convinced that it's all about knowing oneself loved and learning how to love. It's searching for the Logos. And 2,000 years before, John had written, in the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. Nothing came into being except through the Logos. And the Logos was made flesh and pitched tent with us. And we have seen his glory. Those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God.